A new study has come out showing that middle-aged white people are dying at an alarming rate. Leftists have called an emergency meeting to ask the urgent question, who's going to pay for stuff now and do jobs and invent things? Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. So yeah, this is a fascinating and startling study about what's happening to middle-aged white people, and I have a take you will not hear anywhere else. It may be completely ridiculous, but it's unique. <laughs> so it has, has that going for it. But first, we have to go back. Yesterday, we ended uh, by talking about uh, Quentin Tarantino. <clears throat> Tarantino has this new film coming out for Christmas. It's a Christmas release, a $30 million, I think, Western, called The Hateful Ache. And... <laughs> By way of you know helping his producers promote this, he went. Tarantino went to one of these protests against police brutality, stood up and called the police murderers. And you know the police, you know they're out there risking their lives, you know to keep candy asses like Quentin Tarantino from getting killed in neighborhoods he wouldn't even dare to go into, right? So they took it the wrong way. They, I don't know what, you know, they're sensitive. They didn't like being called murderers, and so they're calling for these boycotts, and it's really a, a large uh, movement of the police calling for a boycott of this film, and yesterday the rap had an, ex uh, this is CNN's show business uh, website, the rap had a, an exclusive report that Tarantino was about to apologize. It was exclusive, it turned out, because it wasn't true. And Tarantino has doubled down and said, no, I'm not going to back down. Which I have to admit, even though I think Tarantino, what he said was reprehensible, it's gotten to the point where apologies are now so common and meaningless that I, you almost can't help admiring somebody. It's like Trump. You know, Trump says these horrible things, these things that if he said them in your home, you would literally kick him to the curb. You would, you know, get out of my house, Donald Trump. And, and he doesn't apologize, and you think, yeah, you know, that's right, Donald, don't apologize. <laughs> I mean, stuff that would require an apology in real life. But the thing about Tarantino is, even though I, I have this kind of weird sense of admiration for the fact that I'm just tired of political correctness in general, even when I disagree with what the guy is saying. I feel people should say what's on their mind. What he said does point to something that is the reason why I have always thought he is an overrated director. Quentin Tarantino is a guy who does not know anything about life, by which I mean the interplay of human beings with one another. All he knows about are the movies, and all his movies are about movies. And as he has gone on, they've stopped from being about movies to being about his like personal little fantasies. And if you watch his movies, they're all about the same fantasy. That Quentin Tarantino, as the artist, is going to take is going to empower some left-wing victim group to take revenge on their oppressors. So in Kill Bill, <clears throat> it's a woman, an abused woman, goes out and kills all her enemies. In Django Unchained, it's black people, in Glorious Bastards, it's the Holocaust Jews. So Quentin Tarantino is saving us all, all us our left-wing victim groups, is saving us all in his fantasies. And I think that's exactly what he was doing when he stood up and talked about something he knows absolutely nothing about in these overblown dramatic terms, calling the police murderers after all. I mean, come on. You know, these are the guys who risk their lives so that we can just walk down. You know, when you're, when you're reading a book, when you're going to the opera, it's because somebody with a gun is standing guard for you against the people who would kill you if they could. And that's the police. And you don't call them murderers unless they actually plotted a murder and showed up and, and committed it. So, I mean, the guy's totally out of line, but it's in keeping with the complete unrealistic nature of his movies and the fact that he just doesn't know anything about real life. And one of the cops actually said that. I can't remember. It may have been Bratton who just said, this man knows nothing about real life, and it's, it's absolutely true. 
We have to talk about briefly the elections, these kind of weird elections where nothing is at stake for anybody except very small places. But Kentucky, that was a big one. Uh, we had in Kentucky a major uh, conservative guy surprised everybody by uh, Max, Matt Beaven. He had just lost two years ago to Mitch McConnell in a, in a primary. And, uh, you know, what I like about that is just the, that it surprises people. I mean, it means that all these people who are making the predictions are always skewed just a little bit to the left. And I think that's true of even the conservative predictors. I think that everybody is unnerved by the idea of real conservatives, because the thing that real conservatives do is they leave things alone. And I think that that is the most frightening idea to everybody, that we are not in control, that we don't have to control the system. The system kind of works. I mean, that's where freedom, the whole idea of freedom, <coughs> I think, generated out of Newton discovering science, out of discovering that God didn't actually have to sit around and pick the sun up in his fingers and kind of put it and plant it in the sky. It is, you know, it was a machinery that works, and that started people thinking, like Adam Smith, he started thinking, well, maybe the economy works like that too. Maybe there's an invisible hand that controls the economy. Maybe people could be free. Maybe we don't need a king telling us what to do at every moment. And I think that's the most frightening idea of all and the most revolutionary idea. And I think even right-wingers don't think right-wingers will win because they're kind of scared of that idea. So the idea, I read this, uh, this interview, the, kind of a debate between Nate Silver, the, you know, the guy who does predictions, and Mika Cohen, a politics editor at this website. And Silver and Cohen were debating what, it's a year away now from the presidential election, they were debating what things look like. And they were both saying it's basically 50-50. It's basically impossible to call. But that could all change if the GOP nominates Trump or Carson or Ted Cruz, and then the Democrats have a big advantage. I think that's probably, there's probably some sense to that. I mean, if you look at a guy like Ted Cruz, we're such a divided country, he's so far on the right, it's possible he can't reach out. But the thing these guys forget is when it comes down to the election, it's two people. It's two people, and people look at A and they look at B, and there's a bunch of people who will only vote Democrat and a bunch of people who will only vote Republican, and then everybody else is, gonna, is actually going to pay attention and listen to these two guys and make the decision on the careful intellectual uh, idea of which one of them is better looking. I mean, that's basically, and has more charisma. I mean, that's basically the way it goes. And the other one, the other big election story was in Houston where the voters rejected uh, this this uh, bill that was supposed to give equal rights to gays and lesbians and all the initials, whatever they are, LGBT, whatever. And this was promoted by this lesbian mayor. She was the mayor of Houston. She was not the mayor of the lesbians. She was like, you know, like I'm, I'm from the planet. I am the mayor of all the lesbians. No, but she was the mayor. She's the mayor of Houston. She put this thing forward, and they rejected it largely on the basis of the fact that it would have allowed transgender people to use the wrong bathroom. So what it would basically it would have allowed any man who said, you know, man, I feel like a woman, like the Shania Twain song, as long as you're singing that song, you are allowed to walk into the girls' bathroom. The thing that gets me about this is how many of these people are there? I mean, I actually, I actually have some compassion for this. It's be, you know, I think, I think there really is, are, in the human mind, these sexual stereotypes, these gender stereotypes. These gender norms, they're not stereotypes, they're norms. We all have in our mind, and I don't think they're created by society. I think societies kind of manipulate them a little bit, but I think they're there. I think we're born with them. And I think we all deviate from them, and insofar as we deviate from them, we all feel a little uncomfortable in our skin, you know? Everybody wants to be the perfect man, the perfect woman. And 
if you think about it for a minute, what it would be like to actually feel, now I don't know if it's a mental illness, I don't know if it's a physical thing that happens at birth, I don't know if it's a, a genetic thing, I have no idea, and I don't think anybody does have an idea. But if you can imagine what it would be like to actually think that you were the opposite sex, very unpleasant, I would, <laughs> I would think. It just, it just does not sound like a fun thing to be. But how many can there be? I mean, are there seven? Are there, you know, I mean, how many in the entire country can there be? Why is that what we're debating? Why is that what we're talking about? It just seems strange to me. And I really think that the importance that the media has managed to give this and the left have managed to give it is part of this war on reality that they're waging. It's not so important that this guy, because let's face it, it would be safer for everybody if they used the men's bathroom, no matter how they identified. I don't care what the guy next to me thinks he is. You know, it's like, and I can, and I, I you know, in a room full of men, you're going to be able to take care of yourself, you know, where, where it's just wrong. It's just wrong for, to have women endangered by any uh, predator who declares himself to be a woman, you know. I'm, it's, it, that's, it's insane. And so I have to think there's something else beneath it. And it reminds me of this movie, Blow Up, which is probably now kind of forgotten, but it was a big movie in its time. It, back in the, it's way back in the 60s. It was this kind of art house movie about a photographer who, he's a mod, alienated photographer. In those days, people were mod, you know, and he was, he's a British photographer, and he's taking pictures, and as he develops the pictures, he sees a dead body in the background of one of these pictures he's taking. And what I'm gonna tell you is the last scene of the movie, and so it's kind of a spoiler in that sense, so if you want to skip through and not listen, but it doesn't give away the plot. It doesn't tell the ending because the plot is solved in, in another place. But at the last scene, there's this kind of symbolic coda to the movie. And the photographer is standing in a park, and a bunch of clowns come by. And they're just clowns, you know, on a car. And it's this kind of surreal scene. And they come out, and they start playing a game of tennis with make-believe rackets and balls. They have no rackets and balls, but they just start hitting the, the ball back and forth and they're just waving their hands in the air and, this, and watching the ball, and the clowns are watching the ball go back and forth and all this. And after a while, as the photographer stands there, he begins to hear the sound of this tennis match, you know, you know the ball going over and all this. And finally, they hit the ball away, and it, it gets out of the court. It's, it's invisible, it's not there, but it gets out of the court. And they start to call to the photographer, pick up the ball, pick up the ball. And he's looking around like, what you, there is no ball. But they keep insisting, they keep saying, pick up the ball, pick up the ball. And the last scene of the picture, he walks over and he picks up this make-believe ball. And just before it, the, the picture fades out, he vanishes. He just, it's like the, literally the last three frames of the movie. He picks up this invisible wall and he vanishes because he accepts this idea that reality is not reality. He accepts this idea that people can declare what reality is. And I think the left is telling us to pick up the ball. I think they're telling us to pick up that imaginary tennis ball that men are women, men can declare themselves women, women can declare themselves men. Reality just falls before our mighty minds. And I just think that that's the only reason I can think of why this completely minor and ridiculous issue should be an issue at all, and why that's what this mayor should be expending her political capital on. All right, let's talk about death. I mean, that, <laughs> let's, get, let's get down to the happy stuff about death. So here are these two guys, these two uh, economists at Princeton, right? And one of them, uh, Angus Deaton, just won the Nobel Prize, not for this, but he won it for this, and he works with his wife, Anne Case. And I really like this guy because you know, I don't know that much about his work, but I've, I've read a couple of his articles. And one of the things he has been arguing for years is that when we talk about inequality, 
we shouldn't just talk about economics. We should talk about well-being, how people feel. So he gave this interview. Bring up the, this interview. This is an interview he gave a while back where he started to talk about some of the other ways to find out whether people have a sense of well-being. And he hit upon what, for an intellectual, was a brainstorm, which is ask them, <laughs> OK? So here's, here's Angus Deaton. This is this Nobel Prize winning economist. The um, subjective part is very important here, too, um, because subjective well-being relates to the idea that people have an idea of their own well-being and that we can find out something about well-being simply by asking them. So that whole field of subjective well-being is sort of distinct from the more traditional approaches to well-being, say, in economics, um, where we tended to judge well-being indirectly through um, perhaps the income that people have, um, how healthy they are, um, things like life expectancy, um, whether they live in democracy, all the things that make life good. And the subjective well-being is instead of measuring these things indirectly and inferring how well off someone is by, say, how much income they have, um, you actually ask people. Now, the, what I think is still a wide open question after many years of doing this is just exactly what these answers mean. Okay, so it, you know, a Princeton Nobel Prize winning economist has hit on the idea that money can't buy happiness. Okay? <laughs> like, and you can find out how happy people are by, by asking them. So, so he and his wife, Ann Case, are doing this study about happiness and suicide. And they're finding some really weird stuff out about happiness and suicide. And I'll get back to that. But they're watching how people, how, you know, how people die, kill themselves in various states, and how that relates to happiness in those various states. And they stumble on the fact that middle-aged white people are dying at a faster rate after years and years and years of, of life expectancy getting longer and longer and longer, only in America, okay? And here's, here's the New York Times reporting, and I'll just read their opening paragraph. Something startling is happening to middle-aged white Americans. Unlike every other age group, unlike every other racial and ethnic group, unlike their counterparts in other rich countries, death rates in this group have been rising, not falling. That was reported by these two Princeton uh, economists. They concluded that rising annual death rates among this group, these are white people uh, 45 to 54, they concluded that rising annual death rates among this group are being driven not by the big killers like heart disease and diabetes, but by an epidemic of suicides and afflictions stemming from substance abuse like alcohol, liver disease, and overdoses of heroin and prescription opioids, okay? So that's all suicide as far as I'm concerned. That's all people killing themselves with drugs and alcohol. And, and white people, this is white people 45 to 54, largely uneducated, with no more than a high school education, which is not uneducated, but it's not upper education, the kind of education you need now to go into the technological fields. Death rates among these people rose 22%. And death rates uh, rose a little bit. These, these things affected white middle-aged people in all brackets. But this group, it rose 22%, which is huge, OK? And the thing that immediately comes to everybody's mind is why. And I suppose people are going to be talking about this and researching this, and it's going to guide. This is a really startling study. This took everybody by surprise. And even them, it even took uh, Deaton and his wife by surprise. And the question is why. And of course, we all want, everybody in this room, we all want to blame Barack Obama. 
Uh, but unfortunately, I'm sorry, this, the trend started in uh, 1998, I think. So, um, you know, dang, I, I know. But maybe, maybe he was doing something behind the scenes, you know. It's like, I, I always love these people who think Obama, I, I have a very, uh, a very different idea of Obama than a lot of people on the right. I, I, don't, I think he is a small-minded, backward-thinking uh, narrow-minded, unpleasant, unclassy guy who's all, all who's completely incompetent. He's a, I think he's got narcissistic personality disorder. I think he has skated on his using his race and using political correctness to achieve the highest office in the land without ever achieving anything. I think his presidency has been a disaster. But. I don't think he's evil. I think only spoiled Americans think that's what evil looks like. I have had lunch with guys who would put a bullet in your kneecap just to watch you dance. That's evil. Barack Obama is not an evil man, okay? I mean, that's, that's not what he is. And he's not an evil genius. And the reason I know he's not an evil genius who's manipulating events to make things come out the way he wants is because that guy doesn't exist outside of James Bond movies, okay? Nobody can tell how things are going to go. The world is simply too complicated. And so there are no evil genii of that, of that sort. And so he's not. But he is, you know, he's a bad president, but he's not to blame for this. And I think one of the things that you learn when you try to think clearly is if you blame events that you don't like on things that you don't like, you'll make yourself dumb, okay? You'll make yourself stupid. It's like, it's like the left does this with guns. They don't like guns. Somebody gets shot with guns. It must be the fault of the guns. It's nonsense. I mean, every study shows that it's nonsense, but they just blame stuff they don't like on things that they don't like, and we can't do that. So we have to look around at this. But I have been, so I was starting to look at this. Now, obviously, this is going to take research. I'm just talking off the top of my head. I'm just talking off the things that bother me and that I've been kind of reading about and looking at. So one, one explanation, the thing is, we kind of know now what makes people happy. What makes people happy is love. I mean, that's basically it. And they can talk about all the genes they want, all the genetic uh, factors that may go into happiness. People are made happy by their social relationships of affection and the love in their lives. Religion makes people happy, but that can be explained away by the fact that religious people have wider social connections. They have more deep, rich social connections because they go to church and they're involved with people uh, in their church and they're involved with people through their church. God can always be explained away. That's how he's arranged it because he wants us to be free. So God oh, oh, never lets himself get proven. You know, he never lets him get, we can, always, we can always talk ourselves out of God. So, but we know, so we don't know what, why religion makes people happy, but we know that love makes people happy. And so a lot of people have said, well, the fact that we're all online now uh, is what is making people miserable because it's separating us. There's, there's a new report by Common Sense Media that children are now, teens ages 13 to 18, spend almost nine hours a day on entertainment media, which includes things like checking out social media, music, gaming, or online videos. I don't know if you heard about this, uh, this woman, uh, Asina O'Neill. She's a, an Australian model who was, in her mind, an amazing success because she had 500,000 Twitter followers? Is that who's 500,000 followers? Maybe Facebook followers. Is that Instagram? Instagram. Okay, sorry. And she was publishing everything she did, whether it was having a relationship or whatever. She was she was posting on Instagram. She had all these followers. She was making a bundle. She was really getting rich. And suddenly she decided it all meant nothing. And she put out this kind of fraught video declaring that this is her last YouTube video ever. So let's. This is a scene on you. I was surrounded by all this wealth and all this fame and all this power, and yet they were all miserable. 
And I had never been more miserable. I'm the girl that had it all. And I want to tell you that having it all on social media means absolutely nothing to your real life. And it, it might for a second, yeah, like I was, I was making changes in a, in a small amount to do with veganism, to do with um, uh, whatever, positive thinking. But at the same time, everything I was doing was edited and contrived and to get more value and to get more views, to get more, oh, I had all this in me that I just wanted more people to hear me so everything I did was for views for likes for followers I did shoots for like hours just to get photos for Instagram I would meet up with people and talk and connect whatever but just make photos for Instagram like yes I could connect with them but the basis of what we were doing wasn't just love and in nature and getting out there and, and talking about life it was social media which is now a business hello it's easy. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it would be easy to make fun of this girl. <laughs> and if you see me after the show, I'll be happy to do that. But <laughs> I, actually, I actually have some feelings, feelings for her. I mean, what, what's funny about it is she's a teenager, and we know by Thursday of next week, she's going to have her new you know, Instagram site, How I'm Not on Instagram. <laughs> she's going to be posting. <laughs> you know, it'll be like this postmodern version of what she was doing before. But... <laughs> But I do have some sympathy with this, and I have some small experience with this. Writers, uh, novelists never get as famous as, as movie stars or people who post on Instagram, but you know, I have had bestsellers and I've been interviewed, and I can tell you it is a completely worthless experience. I mean, very, I, I would say one of the truly most disappointing moments in my life was the first time I was interviewed, because when you want to be a writer, you kind of have daydreams, oh, one day they'll I'll get famous and they'll interview me, and I did, and they did, and I thought, eh, this is boring, <laughs> you know, I, I don't like this at all, and I just, it totally changed the direction of my life, I just thought, I, I don't care, I'm not, I'm not playing for it, I'm not working for it, it's, it's, it doesn't mean a thing to me. <clears throat> but but the fact is that social media, I believe, has actually been a, a huge benefit to most of us. Everything can be abused, but there's another study uh, from the Pew Research Center that shows that the more different kinds of media that people use to interact, the stronger their relationships tend to be. And of course, that makes perfect sense because most of us are using social media to talk to our kids, to talk to our spouses when they travel, to see our kids from afar, you know, that's that, and our friends. And so when kids, you know, I, I hang out around kids, I, I know the way they use social media, they're not using it like this girl is most of the time, they're talking to each other. And there are these uh, weird effects, uh, bad things like people bullying each other online, uh, people making themselves look better than they do so other people get depressed because their lives aren't as good as, as yours. You know, that's an Alcoholics Anonymous, I think, they have a saying, uh, don't compare your inside with someone else's outside, and I think that Facebook tends to pr promote that uh, to people. So it's not this, but there's something else. Let's go back to this, this study, this actual study. Um, let me see if I can find, because the other thing they found in this study was that people are using this huge amount, and especially white people, uh, are using a huge amount of prescription drugs, okay? And this study, this is from the New York Times reporting on the study, <coughs> it says it's not clear why only middle-aged whites had such a rise in their mortality rates. Uh, in their commentary, two doctors considered a variety of explanations, including a pronounced racial difference in the prescription of opioid drugs and their misuse, okay? This is a big deal, but I think that it has, this is what I believe, 
that one of the things that has happened recently, most of the prescription drugs, there's, there's been this huge upsurge in, in the use of prescription drugs. Uh, the, a, another study, I think it's something like 60% of Americans are now on prescription drugs. Most of these are statins, which is a miracle drug and has emptied out uh, you know, heart doctors' offices. Uh, so that is, a, that is a miracle drug, I think. I mean, there may be uh, side effects we don't know about. But these antidepressants are really different. This is a huge change. 1990, say, in 1990, if you went to a psychiatrist, he would talk to you. He would listen to you. Uh, they would use their Freudian and other theories on what you were saying to shape your perception of yourself. That entirely changed <clears throat> with the advent of these new antidepressant and psychotropic drugs. And that now, if you go to a psychiatrist, he will prescribe medicine. That's all, psychiatrists have become drug dealers. And not only have they become drug dealers, they are now writing books. There's a book out called Shrinks, where the guy claims that the old psychiatry was a complete fraud, that all we should be studying is the physical causes of mental illness so we can be adjusting it with drugs. And if you want to talk to somebody, you have to go to a psychologist or a psychotherapist like my wife, and you, know, you go and, and talk to them, and they will talk to you. But most of these guys are pushing these drugs. Now, because of capitalism, when a new drug comes out, it, it frequently is invented because somebody has a terrible problem. So there are people who are depressed for no reason, and they give them these drugs, and it helps a little bit. But as it, through capitalism, you have to expand your market base. So pretty soon, you'll see these ads that come out and say, have you been depressed for two weeks? Well, we have the, ask your doctor about, about Zoloft. You know, ask your doctor about Zoloft. And you think, like, two weeks? Everybody's depressed for two weeks. You know, maybe, maybe the guy's wife left him. Maybe, you know, maybe he was hit by a car, right? You're going to take Zoloft? You know, what? So Mad TV, bring up the second one of those ads. I don't have time to show the first one, but Mad TV did a takeoff on one of these depressant ads, which I just love. Watch this, I'll talk about it in a minute. You feel a little tired lately, run down. You're not yourself. You're losing interest in the things you once loved. Your relationships are suffering. You feel antisocial. If this describes your life, there may be an answer. There may be help. A little pill called ecstasy. Ask your dealer if it's right for you. Ecstasy works by releasing a series of chemicals into your system, endorphins and serotonin. <laughs> The endorphins bring on a sense of nirvana. I think that tray was trying to tell me something. I know the bird was. <laughs> the serotonin allows you to feel a sense of bliss, lasting for hours on end. What's your name? I love you. <laughs> Look, it's Mowgli. <laughs> Ecstasy is not for everyone. Side effects include paralysis, willingness to have sex with Margaret Cho, and listening to crappy techno music. Ecstasy is often made by community college dropouts in trailers or cockroach-infested bathrooms. Chronic use can lead to prolonged discussions with your socks, shoes, or other footwear. Occasionally, ecstasy can lead to death, or in severe cases, a tendency to waste votes on the Green Party. <laughs> well, the reason that is so funny is because it's absolutely true. There is no difference, really, between this prescription medication and the drugs that people are using to self-medicate, including alcohol, which, by the way, is the greatest antidepressant on earth. I mean, it works instantaneously from the time you put it in your mouth to the time your hand hits the, hits the table, you feel better. You know, there is simply no difference. And underlying all this 
is a materialist world worldview. Leave God out of it for a minute, but just the idea that we are chemistry sets that are to be tampered with, I think is stripping the meaning out of people's lives. And I think because white people are more uh, in, involved in a culture of, of science. I mean, one of the things they found is that black people feel a little worse about their lives, not much, but a little bit worse about their lives, but they commit much less suicide than white people. And I think because white people are involved in this culture, this materialist culture, in a way that other races are not, the meaning is being stripped out of their life. I'm going to end with this uh, short quote from a philosopher named Roger Scruton, and he's talking about what's called emergent realities, which is fancy philosophical talk for things that are more than the sum of their parts. So the, the fact that you have uh, arms and legs and a, a head and all this, but when we glue you together, you're you, that's an emergent reality, all right? And Roger Scruton says, there is a widespread habit of declaring emergent realities to be nothing but the things in which we perceive them. The human person is nothing but the human animal. Law is nothing but relations of social power. Sexual love is nothing but the urge to procreation. The Mona Lisa is nothing but a spread of pigments on a canvas. The Ninth Symphony is nothing but a sequence of pitched sounds, a varying timbre, and so on. Getting rid of this habit is, to my mind, the true goal of philosophy. And if we get rid of it when dealing with the small things, symphonies, pictures, people, we might get rid of it when dealing with the large things too, notably when dealing with the world as a whole. And then we might conclude that it is just as absurd to say that the world is nothing but the order of nature as physics describes it, as to say that the Mona Lisa is nothing but a smear of pigments. Drawing that conclusion is the first step in the search for God. And I actually think taking that first step would save a lot of lives in America. All right, here's stuff I like. I, really quickly, uh, I, I wanted to do lighter stuff because we did all this hallow, dark Halloween stuff I like. My favorite cartoon, my single favorite cartoon, and I'm probably going to walk off the set and think of another one. Has everybody seen Daffy Duck as Robin Hood? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everybody's seen it. All right. So I'm not telling you anything you don't know. If you've never seen this, this is the funniest six minutes ever made. It is just hilarious. And the best place to find it is on uh, supercartoons.net. It's the one place you can watch it for free and get it unrestrained. Six minutes of absolute hilarity. And I, I'm not going to show any of it because it's so short that I don't want to give any of it away. But take a look at Daffy Duck as Robin Hood. Uh, I, when I saw it on a plane the first time and almost cut myself in half laughing against the seatbelt. <laughs> so I, I wanted to fall out of my chair, but I couldn't because the seatbelt sign was on. All right, that's it. That's the Andrew Clavin Show for today. We'll be back tomorrow and talk some more. Thank you for listening.